0: Hello, I'm Billy Jacobson, a partner at Allen & Overy, focusing on white-collar criminal work including FCPA defense investigations and compliance. This is part of a series of web chats recorded during this period of self-isolation, though less isolation now than in the past few months, with prominent folks in the world of anti-corruption and criminal defense. I'm joined today for the first time by a partner of mine, Eve Giles. Eve is a white-collar partner at Allen & Overy's London office and has been a premier defense attorney in the UK for years. We'll cover with Eve today a few different issues regarding anti-corruption enforcement in the UK. Welcome, Eve. Hi,
1: Billy. Thank you.
0: How are you holding up during this period of self-isolation?
1: <laughs> it has its ups and downs and has its moments, doesn't it? But yeah, overall, pretty good. Thank you.
0: Good, good. Um, so, Eve, A recent decision in the U.K. concerning the directing mind may well have relevance to attempts to prosecute corporates in the U.K. for corruption offences, particularly, I think, for pre-Bribery Act conduct. Um, Would you explain this decision and its implications, if you would?
1: Yes, thanks, Billy. Really happy to so you so you're right it, this this decision didn't actually involve um a, a corruption matter and i was sort of thinking in advance about kind of in, in what circumstances it would be of relevance and you're you're absolutely right so for for post july post july 2011 um activities they would be captured by the failure to prevent um offence under the bribery, bribery act um, but where it is important um, is in respect of sort of underlying bribery offences, so the section one offence of um, bribery, section six of bribery of for a foreign public official, or the um, receiving a bribe offence, um, because what it what it looks at is the circumstances in which a corporate could be found liable um, for the underlying conduct. And um, this case is of interest because it's caused a big loss to the SFO um, in court. Uh, And it's also relevant where, as we know, Billy, that often where you have um, a corruption matter, there's also other underlying conduct which is captured, such as fraud or money laundering. Um, And when you're advising a corporate about the risks of going in, obviously, one of the decisions you'll be looking at is to what extent the corporate could itself be potentially liable um, for um, the the underlying offences. And it's of interest because in in my lifetime, really, or certainly since I've been studying and practising law, there hadn't been a big decision on what the um, what corporate liability was um, and in criminal matters. And the two leading cases, which we kind of always learned about in the textbook, so they're called Tesco and Meridian, are back from the 70s and, and the 80s, and obviously kind of made at a time when corporates um, had very different structures and different footprints and and, and different different, um, ways in which they were kind of organized internally. And also, I think we're always very nervous, I'm sure you're the same, Billy, but when sort of these kind of age-old principles come to be tested by the courts, um, you're always a little bit nervous about how they um, may turn out. um, And particularly where the leading case, Tesco, had had quite a lot of criticism about how you would actually prove corporate liability against a corporation. So what the rule was following Tesco was that basically in order for a company itself to have what what they would define as a reprehensible state of mind, they would need for um, the individual who had committed the relevant act to have had the full discretion to act independently of the instruction of the board uh, in respect to the relevant function or relevant act and not to be responsible to the board for the manner in which they carried out that relevant act. And that um, was upheld uh, by the Court of Appeal in this recent case. And w- what they said is you need to look very carefully at the articles of, of association, the kind of questions around delegation, look at the functions in question. And you're not, it's not good enough just to have a degree of autonomy in, in an underlying act, but they actually need entire autonomy from the decision making, from the board. Um, in this matter. So it, it, it was a helpful um, case to that extent in terms of um, advising corporates when and in, in the way in which you would go about ascertaining whether or not there's potential corporate criminal liability. I just wanted to point out another couple of um, observations on that case before I sort of go and talk about what I think it means in terms of corruption um, matters. But, but what what they did observe that even if the board member may be aware of the underlying act, if they don't share it with the board um, and the board decision is, as generally it is, um, a majority decision, then that knowledge of the, the one individual, or, or and there's even case law that even if two individuals um, had the, the requisite guilty knowledge, if it's not shared with the board and the board's making the ultimate decision, then the board itself is generally not liable. There were some sort of references in that case to the the SFO approaching the Articles of Association and the different resolutions as mere pieces of paper. And the court said, absolutely not. You need to look properly at what these um, Articles of Association say and what they mean and the way that decisions are devolved within a company. Um, And they also said, which I think is helpful, that it is quite wrong to assume that the way a large corporation deals with those sorts of issues and devolving and, uh, responsibility and delegation is a means of trying to avoid corporate liability. Um, it, it basically said that that boards of large corporations cannot be expected to know or concern themselves with day-to-day transactions and operations. And it's a matter of good corporate governance, the way that they um, generally deal with those sorts of issues.
0: Does it mean that there would not be corporate criminal liability but for... The board itself deciding to pursue a certain path, that is ultimately judged a crime, or is that too simplistic of a of a of a explanation? Yeah,
1: I mean, no, I think that I think that's a good question. I think that's right in part. It's a very long judgment. <laughs> it's quite complicated to kind of um, take it take it all. And I would recommend anyone who wants to get to the bottom of it completely should should read it. If you've got an example of a um, a contract, so. No say in, in one of the matters we might deal with in a corruption investigation, where you've got a, a contract that has been negotiated and signed off by a senior member with um, delegation for the for that function and the ability to sign off and and bind the company in that way, then that may well lead to corporate criminal liability. You have to look at what the underlying um, transaction is and the way in which those uh the responsibility has given, been given to the relevant senior member, and um, within the, within the company, so there can well be um, corporate attribution if the whole board was not aware of it if they had devolved everything in relation to that um, underlying contract to
0: that to that person. If the board had devolved oversight or responsibility mm-hmm. for a particular function, that could be a board function. But if the board had basically delegated that function to some smaller member of the company, either a board, a, a smaller committee, or an individual like a, an executive of the company, then the board could be liable if that executive, for example, takes that unlawful conduct.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think these cases very much, and it's kind of that that turn of phrase, which I know everyone who's not a lawyer hates, but <laughs> they are very fact-specific. And I think you would have to look at whether or not you'd have you'd have a look at all that underly, sort of the underlying... Um, devolution and in those sort of issues. But, but absolutely, I, my understanding of the judgment is that that is a possibility.
0: So interesting and, and so different from the U.S. version of corporate criminal liability where you could have really any employee uh, go off and commit an act. And if, and if he commits that act in furtherance of what he believes his responsibility to the company to be or in furtherance of uh, the, the corporate's interest, what he believes the corporate interest to be then the corporation can be liable under U.S. law. So this is quite different sounding.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, there is a special attribution rule. So the second part of the test, which was sort of under a case called Meridian, they look at sort of the underlying meaning of the statute in question and whether or not there is an argument that actually, because of the underlying statute, there should be some special attribution rule. Um, which may apply in those sort of circumstances, but in in, in this case where it was a, a fraud act offence, they said there was nothing within the fraud act which would suggest that um, you would apply such a special attribution rule here. And it, it was interesting, actually, what what one of the questions that the um, SFO was asked by the Court of Appeal was kind of what's the underlying purpose of prosecuting the corporate here? So. He, and, and here it was it was because of the response that actually, you know, there's a there was they were facing also a regulatory and civil actions and that the individuals had been charged and, and were prosecuted. That actually there wasn't an argument that, that actually sort of a special attribution rule should apply in these circumstances either. So it seemed to almost be looking at the public policy sort of reasoning there too. Really fascinating and absolutely and and, and I think I haven't heard any since this has happened, it may, they may, I may well have missed it, but you're, you may well recall Billy that there's been quite a clamour for a failure to prevent economic crime offence in the UK as well because of these sorts of questions and, and certainly the regulators and have been saying for some time, um, and particularly uh, David Green, um, Lisa Osofsky's predecessor and Lisa Osofsky too, that they, they feel that they need a failure to prevent economic crime offence as well in the statute books to deal with these sorts of issues. But um, for now, that's not uh, been
0: taken forward. And speaking of that, that sort of provision is, of course, included in the UK Bribery Act. Um, And I know you were going to talk about the uh, impact of this decision on potential cases brought uh, under the UK Bribery Act.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that the difficulty is where you've got this failure to prevent offence on the statute books anyway. And if the conduct post-dates July 2011, when that came into effect, where you're advising a corporate on kind of the merits or not of self-reporting, then if that offence is is potentially an issue, um, that obviously moves somewhat along the dial um, of, of that decision-making, even if it is and if it predates 2011 as well that activity I think you'd be wanting to make a very careful assessment um, with your corporate clients about actually whether or not this would be a self-report and if if you're reporting at all to the SFO on on underlying conduct um, and and the potential liability for the board um, given this is really sort of a reinstatement of the law and I've heard commentators say that they don't think this really changes much, but sort of in my view, it, I think it reinforces helpfully um, the position that was there before. And it had got muddied a little bit along the way with sort of the competing um, presidents on sort of the civil liability front as well as the criminal liability front. So it it sets things out clearly and gives a clear path to follow. And I think the points about actually you need to look carefully at the structure and and the articles of association and the various committees and who was making certain decisions means that you would undertake a very careful analysis before um, kind of next steps on and assessing whether or not there's potential corporate criminal liability or not.
0: And because there's generally no statute of limitations um, in the UK with regard to corporate criminal liability, uh, we know that the SFO is, in fact, looking at cases that predate the Bribery Act, uh, looking at anti-corruption or corruption cases that predate the Bribery Act. And so, do you agree that they will have to wrestle with this decision in deciding whether to charge or how to charge pre-Bribery Act conduct?
1: I think that's right. And I think a lot of that obviously depends on the extent to which you see um, corporates fighting these days. And, and I think things are going more the way they have been going in the U.S. for a long time. Um, now, we've got deferred prosecution agreements on the statute books. And so... You see these sort of points potentially being fought less, uh, but certainly where they are being fought, I think you're right. I think the SFO will have to think very carefully and and, and consider whether or not a potential defence applies to corporate uh, criminal liability. Absolutely. I think you have the same issue in the US as well, don't you? Sort of often the thing that can, can drive a decision as well is if there's issues about sort of um, potential criminal property sloshing around in the in the company and whether that means there's a money laundering issue as well, which um, may have to be reported. So there's 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 there are different factors which play into to that question about whether or not to, to go in and self-report too.
0: Very interesting, very interesting decision. Let let, let me completely switch gears here and ask you a, a separate question. We've talked about, we just talked about the uh, enforcement side. How about the compliance side? Um In April of last year, in April of 2019, the US Department of Justice issued guidance to its prosecutors on how they should evaluate corporate compliance programs. That guidance was tweaked a little bit um, recently in early June 2020, and serves to inform corporates of what DOJ will expect from corporate compliance programs. Now in January of 2020, the SFO updated its own guidance on evaluating corporate compliance programs. And I wonder if you could just walk us through sort of the high points of that guidance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The guidance, I don't think it was quite what everybody was hoping for when it came out. It, it's more, um, mm-hmm. so it's an operational handbook um, guidance, which means that it's more for internal use um, by the SFO when it's assessing whether or not, um, and, and it sets out uh, four circumstances in which it may be used. So first, whether when it's assessing whether a prosecution is in the public interest, Um, when assessing whether or not an organisation should be invited into DPA negotiations, um, in assessing whether or not the defence of adequate procedures against a charge um, may apply, and uh, in in determining whether or not the compliance programme as it stands should be a relevant factor for reducing um, any sentence at the end of any process. And I mean, it's, it's helpful to some extent, a lot of it is kind of re-stating um, what was in the Ministry of Justice guidance but it 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 does show I think the focus that they have on in particular assessing this question of whether or not there's adequate procedures um, within the within the company's um, compliance and so I think what it does do is it warns any company and its um, execs and and employees about exactly how, um, the SFO will approach those sorts of questions. And we are seeing more and more um, in the UK that that the SFO will um, interview using their Section 2, so they're compelled powers, where individuals are compelled to answer questions and they have to answer all questions put to them as part of their investigations into um, bribery and corruption within within corporations. And so we're seeing... A lot of um, these sorts of questions around issues about culture um, being put at this document, which refers to evaluating a compliance programme, I think sort of just sets that out as a basis that, of what sort of questions you can expect. And so just to give you a flavour, I think um, corporates and 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 potentially legal teams as well, because they do also section two um, legal teams within companies. So, yes, yeah, so the sort of questions that, that I think people need to be prepared, be prepared to answer, and they're quite difficult questions in some ways. So, I'll, I'll, look, what's your, what's, how would you describe the culture within your company? Um, what's the culture like in board meetings? How often are you trained on um, these kinds of issues about bribery and corruption? Um what discussions are there around those sorts of issues? Um, what even? What? How would you describe what the Bribery Act does and what an offence is? What does bribery mean? All these sorts of questions, in order to assess actually what what is the top down culture within within boards and within companies. And this is something that we've we've seen quite a lot, um, and particularly in recent time by the FCA with their focus on um, senior managers and culture within. Financial services, but it's certainly something now. It's, it's I think, it's quite new and and, and more recent that this, these sorts of questions are coming um, from the SFO in terms of assessing culture within within the corporate sphere as well.
0: That's so interesting to me because we, we don't, we haven't seen that kind of thing in the United States. In the United States, DOJ and the SEC will have a company come in and have it explain its compliance program. Usually, the chief compliance officer or the general counsel will attend. At times, some board members will attend to show the import of the compliance program to the company. But what we haven't seen is, is witnesses being asked these sorts of questions and being brought in, especially for the purpose of being asked these questions as witnesses, as opposed to sort of just representatives of the company sort of explaining the program generally. So that's very interesting.
1: Yeah, and it's something that I mean, especially when people have worked at a company that for a long time. Actually, if you're asked to describe the culture within the company, or kind of, I don't know how many um, messages if you had, for example, from the CEO on on kind of their approach to bribery, how do you deal with whistleblowing? All those sorts of points. It does. I'm sure a lot of people have very good answers on those, but you kind of have to really think about how how you would put that put that in words and how you would um, explain. Um, how you think or how th- you think things have been dealt with and uh, sort of yeah what, how you would describe the culture within your company it's it's it does take a little bit of thought
0: so eve we're we're about out of time i really appreciate you spending this time with us there so two concluding questions that i've been asking all of our guests on the podcast here the first is uh what is the thing you miss most uh from the outside world these days <laughs>
1: Holidays—is that okay to say? <laughs> just <being laughs> sure. Able to just, yeah, we've we've seen lots of holidays go by the wayside, and to, to Italy and things. So just yeah, just the ability. I, I I live in a sort of quite central London and quite a small place with a very little outside space, and so I dream of just being able to walk in a field. Just it, yeah, looking forward to lockdown being lifted.
0: certainly. Oh yes, indeed. To end on a positive note, something positive that's come out of this period for you.
1: Yeah, I think although things have been very busy, I think it does give you the opportunity just to kind of slow down a bit, though, and kind of think about your priorities and and think about your life kind of a little bit more holistically as well. So I think just that time to think and have those discussions with your family and and everything, I think that's been lovely. Small things like suddenly, as I said, being in central London, you you, you generally just hear the noise of traffic and (laughs) as you've just seen, but now hearing birds sing and little tiny birds kind of coming and visiting our little patio every day and um, it's just lovely I'm, I'm loving just seeing nature coming back
0: uh, Yeah it's, it's gorgeous. Oh, That's great, well thank you so much for your time, really appreciate it this has been a really interesting uh, discussion I think.
1: Thanks so much Billy, thank you for inviting me
0: Okay, be well